may be seated. We turn again to God's Word this morning, to the book of Isaiah, the ninth chapter. For those of you who are visiting with us, this has been uh, our series of messages throughout this month of December, taken from the book of Isaiah, this prophecy that we have in the ninth chapter, and we have seen uh, many blessings and many promises, prof- promises and many prophecies that we find here in this book, in this chapter, in this selection. This morning we want to look at one more that is included here in Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 9. Let us hear then God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Consular, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we stand on the threshold of a new year, we look forward not knowing what will be coming. But, Lord, we stand fast and we stand in hope, knowing that you know what is coming. Your providential interactions with us will determine the course of this next year. You have already gone before us. You have already cleared the ways, not only in our private lives, but also in the life of your church. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you are still sitting on your throne. We pray that you will give Pastor Bob the words, the wisdom, the discernment that he will need to be able to deliver this message to us this morning. Open our hearts, prepare the ground, Lord, so that the seed of your word will settle in. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let me provide you with two illustrations this morning that hopefully will help you to to understand the way in which prophecy works 
in God's Word. Illustration number one is probably, for many of you, taken from this past Tuesday or past Monday. Some of you most likely gathered with family, and uh, you began that process of distributing presents from underneath the tree, and then there was the decision who gets to open first, and then we have the opening of those gifts. And that is done in a variety of ways. Some people just tear into them, and the paper goes flying everywhere. Some people, I think they perhaps more folks of Dutch background who are thinking they might save the paper for the next year's wrapping of presents, begin to go about it so slowly and finding every little piece of tape and taking it off, unwrapping the paper, folding it out. And they haven't even gotten to the gift yet, but when they get to the gift, they're so careful in opening the box, taking the white tissue paper, okay, and then holding up the gift. Oh, it's just what I wanted. Other people, as I said, just tear into the thing. But yet there is a process. There is a process of, of finding what is on the inside of the gift. There is the process of being handed the gift. There is the process of being selected to open the gift. There is the process, no matter whether you're the slow gift opener or the quick one, there is the process of opening. And even after you've, you've torn away the paper, hopefully having read who it was from, you still don't quite know. Because you don't know, did the person actually... Put it, is, is the gift really what it says on the outside of the box, or did they just use this box? So you have to dig a little further. You have to go into the present. And as you go into the present, you, you begin to see perhaps part of what it is. And then maybe some of you experience the fact of somebody opened the gift, they saw what it was, pulled it out, and said, Oh, it's perfect and they're ready to move on to the next gift, and you had to gently remind them there's more in the box. There's something else there, and then there's something else. Prophecy sort of works that way. Okay? We begin to open up the gift that God gives to us in prophecy, and, and, and we open it up, and then we begin to discover more and more and more that is included in it. Or illustration number two, perhaps you've had the opportunity sometime in life to, to uh, perhaps play, a, oh, let's just say a game, for example, of hide and seek. And uh, there's a door closed and there isn't much light. And so you go to the doorknob, you take the doorknob, you turn it, and you begin to slowly open the door, right? And then maybe you slide your hand up the wall and turn on the light and in the crack you can see something of the room and then you begin to open the door because you don't want your wits scared out of you, right? So you just begin to open that door a little bit more and you see more and more and more of what is in the room. Prophecy is like that as well. We come to 
a door, and God allows us in his word to open that door. And the light of the Spirit shines upon that which we find in God's word. And and we see a little bit, but then we begin to see more and more and more. Isaiah chapter 9 works that way. It, it, It really fits that. Because as you make your way through these seven verses, there is a clearer and clearer and clearer understanding and revelation that God is giving to us in that selection. But even Isaiah chapter 9 is, as it were, not a fully open door. There is more to come. We might think we know what's there, but the door has yet to be opened even further. And even as I stand here today and deliver this message, the door is not yet fully open on Isaiah chapter 9. There is yet more to come. Point one, then, the opening door. Point two, a Jewish event. Point three, a recorded event. And point four, the continuing fulfillment. See, here in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, we have a small glimpse of that which God has in store. And it comes in A couple of little phrases. And the phrases are these. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Or as some of your versions read, Galilee of the nations. Now that which Isaiah is referring to are areas that are outside of the traditional borders of Israel. He is referring to those lands in which there is a mixed race of people. Not everybody who lives in the lands beyond the Jordan is Jewish. Not everybody who is from Galilee of the nations is Jewish. This is a mixed group. There are people from all sorts of nationalities that are part of this. Part of that is because of that which... Uh, The Assyrians have done in reassembling people, reassigning people. Some of it is that which Isaiah is prophesying is going to happen, is going to be taking place in the future. And certainly, we would say, by the time of Jesus Christ, those areas are certainly very mixed. Certainly not ethnically pure Jewish. And we'll uncover that again this evening as well as Jesus travels to the Gadarenes. But you see, the door is slightly open and we see a glimpse. And and there in the glimpse of the light of God's word, we, we see that something about that which is happening in this chapter is meant to be beyond the boundaries of Israel. This is meant to be further and farther reaching than simply the people of Judah to whom Isaiah is addressing this message. And certainly, as we go to verses 3 through 5, we see, and if you picture that door opening a little bit further, we get a little bit more information, we get a little bit clearer picture that this is about peace, this is about joy, 
This is about putting to an end the oppressor. This is about victory over Satan. This is about victory over sin. But now we open the door a little bit further into this chapter, and we come to verses 6 and 7, and we learn, well, how is this going to be? How, how are these nations beyond the Jordan, these nations of the Gentiles, how are they going to somehow be impacted by this victory? It comes through a child. It comes through the child who is going to be born, the son who is going to be given, even our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, we might think at this point, that's it, that's the full revelation. No, that isn't. That's only part. The door's only standing partly open. And even as it stands partly open, we can stand back from the words of Scripture and we can say, wow, what an amazing sight Isaiah chapter 9 gives to us. Deliverance, victory over sin, over Satan, through a child who is none other than God himself. The wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the mighty God. And this child is going to establish a kingdom that will last forever and ever. It shall have no end. It shall be a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of joy. A kingdom that extends to the land beyond the Jordan, even Galilee of the nations. But when we turn to the birth account of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, we find a particular Jewish event. We find that, for example, in the birth account, the place, Bethlehem. Nothing is really spoken to us there about Gentiles, about the nations. We have shepherds who are local, who are Jewish, who indeed are watching temple flocks. They have to be Jewish. They cannot be Gentiles for that purpose. So those involved in that birth story, the place of the birth story, the signs are particularly Jewish. I doubt that, that any Gentile would understand at all a child lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. No Gentile would get that. Gentiles like you and I look at that event and say, oh, how gross, dirty, stinky barn, pieces of cloth, how ugly. But yet, as we unpackaged last Lord's Day evening, that's a particular Jewish event. Jews understand that. Jews understand this isn't a dirty barn. Jews understand that this isn't just any old strips of cloth. But here we see beautifully portrayed for us the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here we see the one who is the Passover Lamb. See, it's a particularly Jewish event. Further into Luke chapter 2, well, it, turn there with me, okay? Let, let me just reference it to you, okay, in Luke chapter 2. So you have the birth account, which takes us up to verse 20, passage we're probably all very familiar with, but then verse 21. 
At the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he's called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. A pretty Jewish event. A pretty typical Jewish happening. Gentiles don't understand the significance of this circumcision. They don't understand the covenant relationship between this circumcision and Abraham and all the promises. That's a particularly Jewish event. Look at what happens next. And when it came time for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So here we are now, 40 days after the birth. And where are we at? We're at the temple. We're observing the law of Moses. We're going through the rites of purification. Mary and Joseph are going to bring the offering of very poor people to turtle doves, pigeons. This was allowable under Jewish law that you didn't have to give a lamb if you were not in that economic class. So it's a reminder to us of the poverty out of which Joseph and Mary are operating at this particular time, but it's a particularly Jewish event. Gentiles don't observe a rite of purification after 40 days. It's all Jewish. So we might be opening this cracked door and looking and saying, okay, we, we see what's happening, but everything seems to be focused on the Jewishness of this event. And yet there are hints. There are hints even here in Luke chapter 2 that something bigger is happening other than just a particular event for the Jewish people in Bethlehem. Those two things are, number one, notice in the song of the angels or in the words of the angels. For behold, verse 10, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, you might say, well, that's not necessarily all that clear. I would agree. But if you compare it now to Isaiah chapter 9, you go, oh, all the people, all sorts of people, yes, but all people, those even beyond the Jordan, those who are part of the Galilee of the nations, of the Gentiles, yes, for all the people, here comes the message. To you, a Savior has been born, Christ the Lord. But in that event of that going to the temple for the purification, they meet, do Mary and Joseph, a man who has been residing in the temple, or near the temple, we would say, for a long period of time. A man named Simeon. Pick it up at verse 25 if you're in Luke chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Note the particular Jewishness. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It was revealed to him, not by the Holy Spirit, revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do to him according to the custom of the law, note all the Jewishness taking place, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, 
Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared, note, in the presence of all peoples. Remember the angel. Remember Isaiah. Now note what he says. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. Remember Isaiah 9? If you read verses 1 and 2, the light to the Gentiles is that which is found in verse 2. The one who is going to be the light is a light particularly to the Gentiles. Simeon is seeing the truth, the reality of Isaiah chapter 9. That door has creaked open just a little bit more. We're seeing those first two verses of Isaiah 9 beginning to be fulfilled. Because Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit, when he sees Jesus, knows this is the one who is the light to the Gentiles. Language taken directly from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. But then comes a recorded event that even takes us further into this. Go back to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and asserted from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the door has opened a little bit further on the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, now comes into play in this account that Matthew gives to us. They see a sign. And this sign is given only to them. Only the wise men see this star. 
Else Herod doesn't have to ask, does he? Else, don't you think all of Israel would have gone, hey, there's this big bright star shining over Bethlehem. Maybe we ought to go see what this big star is all about. But you notice nobody's going. Because nobody sees it but the wise men. They're the only ones to whom God reveals this glorious sign. Notice they saw it when it rose. Not that they followed the star all the way. They followed the bearings of the star. They saw it when it rose. They saw it at the time of Christ's birth. They took the bearings of where that star was, and now they have traveled. It's obvious they don't see it anymore when they come to Jerusalem because they have to ask, so where is he? Well, why didn't they just follow the star? Why did they stop? Because they don't see the star anymore. In God's grace, he gives them the sign. The sign of what? A light to the Gentiles. The prophecy of Isaiah that those beyond the Jordan, those foreigners who live outside of the land of Israel, upon them a light has dawned. They saw the star and they came. Only the Gentiles. See, this is not a Jewish event. This is not a sign for the Jews. This was for the Gentiles. Abraham, go outside. Tell me what you see, Abraham. You see stars, Lord. Lord, There's a lot of them. The Lord says to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. A sign for Gentiles. It's the stars of the heavens are part of the family of Abraham. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, a light has dawned. Wise men come from the east, having seen a star, a light, and they travel to where the Christ is, where the king is. And what do they do? What are we told happens when they get there? Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Here are the nations of the world represented in these wise men, these magi, who are coming from the very place that Isaiah prophesied they would come from, and they come, and what do they do? They worship the child. They worship the one who is wonderful counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. They bend their knee before Him. Oh, do you see the door opening even further upon this scene that God is giving to us? The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. 
the fulfillment of his covenant to Abraham? What do we read in Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. In wise men, bowing in worship before the child, We see a glimpse of Philippians 2. Revelation 4, Revelation 1, 4 and 5. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robe with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 17 They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Revelation 19, 16, on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the door opens further. And then we see these wise men, these magi, Offering gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The costliest of items that could be given. By the way, this notes to us the fact that this was after the 40 days. Because if they had presented them before the 40 days to Mary and Joseph, guess what? They couldn't get away with just offering their young pigeons. So we know that the wise men or magi are not present At the birth of Jesus. They are not present at the same time the shepherds are there. It would be a conflict of scripture to have them there. They have come. They have journeyed later. They saw the star at the birth. Now they had to travel from wherever they're coming from to get there. That's why Herod calculates it's about two years. But they present their gifts. Typical. You know, when foreign dignitaries visit or when our president visits a foreign dignitary, they still bring gifts. We still do this sort of thing, okay, in honor, in recognition. What? Of the fact that the one to whom they are coming is indeed a king, a ruler. The picture of all those words that are yet to come in the New Testament of who Jesus Christ is, is shown to us here In Matthew chapter 2, offering the best that can be offered, offering the glorious gifts. Perhaps therein lies a challenge for this coming year. As we come at this last Lord's Day of a calendar year, we can well ask ourselves the question under examination, did we give the Lord our best? Did we give Him the best? Of the gifts that we have to offer? Did we give them the best of our time? 
Did we give him the best of our devotion? Did we give him the best of our prayer life? Did we give him the best that he so richly deserves in service to the kingdom? Did we give our best? Or have we withholden? Have we kept back? Have we not offered our gold and frankincense and myrrh? But we've been stingy. We've given bronze instead of the gold. We've given salt instead of frankincense. And we've given pepper instead of myrrh. But here upon this last day then, if you are into setting before you goals for the next year, set this as your single solitary goal. I will give to Christ my best. For that is what the Gentiles of the nations do. They worship the Christ and they give him the best. But Isaiah 9 is not yet the fully door open. For you see there is still a coming event in God's word. A continuing fulfillment. There is Pentecost in which all of these people hear the word of the gospel in their own language. No longer some holy language of Hebrew. No longer some holy language of Greek. But they hear it in their common language. This, this is what is so glorious. That the word of the gospel goes forth. Not in some unknown tongue. But it goes forth in a known language. Because someday. You will bow, but no longer in grace, but then in judgment. But today, today is the day of grace. Come to the wise men, to the light of Christ. Worship and give the best his glory. And God's people say, Father, we do thank you for your word and for this reminder as well. How rich, how deep is your word. Father, we just thank you this morning for including us in this glorious gospel of grace. For it's not because of who we are or what we are. It's because of what you have done that we can sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. In his name, God's people say, amen. Number 195, we'll stand and sing verses 1, 2, and 3. Then have our benediction.